0: This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. At this time of year, as the weather warms and exams approach, there's a distinct sense of, well, anxiety on college campuses. That includes Fordham's campus, which WFUV calls its home, and where students, most of whom would rather be spending their time lounging around outside, are starting to realize that they need to start studying. This in mind, we asked a couple of current Fordham students and one former college student who is now a teacher at Fordham's high school about their exam anxieties, past and present. Are you someone who gets stressed out uh, during exam time? In general, yes. Mainly
1: because I don't do work for the rest of the semester. So that's my one chance to make up for it.
0: I think a lot of the stress I felt was because I was poor poured- planning, last-minute guy, and uh, I was into partying, too, a lot.
1: All you want to do is be outside, and that's... doesn't always... isn't always conducive to studying, so... Do you
0: have any strange rituals that you would do or superstitions to prepare for your exams? Yeah, uh, No, I... just the... the all-nighter and, uh... Uh, I don't, you know, smoked a lot of cigarettes. I grew a beard. <laughs> so I don't know if that was a
1: ritual. I have a lot of trouble with Italian, and I did this last year, and I've gone back to it a couple times this year. When I have an Italian test, I listen to the one Italian song I have on my iTunes. <laughs> repeatedly. (laughs) Did you ever have any strange exam nightmares? Nightmares, no, but bad things have happened on exams in real life, (laughs) so that's worse.
0: And we'll hear a little bit more about those nasty exam nightmares in a few minutes, because today on Fordham Conversations, we are talking about school, school anxiety, spring fever, and why we keep coming back to college even though it's really expensive and it forces us to study when it's nice out and we'd rather be playing frisbee or something. Later today on the show, we'll hear about one constant spring temptation, skipping class. But first, my guest on the show today is Fordham University English professor Leonard Casuto. As the director of graduate placement and professional development for that department, Casuto spends a lot of time thinking about the rewards and anxieties of academic life for students and professors. Casuto's published several articles in the Chronicle of Higher Education on topics like tenure and evaluation of students and faculty, and he was kind enough to come to our studios to show me the bigger picture that's behind the more transient problems of exam time. I started out by asking him what the major problems are that are facing universities today.
1: Universities in the United States, generally, are dealing with what might be called the fallout from the culture wars of the 80s, and that fallout turned into a set of, I would say, ongoing attacks on the way that professors go about their business. There's a a generalized suspicion, I think, of what goes on behind the so-called ivy-covered walls, and it's a suspicion that's destructive all around for students and faculty alike. It makes everyone defensive. The 1980s criticism of so-called tenured radicals spreading seditious knowledge to our youth has, you might say, matured and has um, turned into a uh, full frontal attack on the practice of academics in the United States. And, you know, if I sound a bit beleaguered, it's uh, not because I am personally, but because the profession as a whole is spending a lot of energy defending itself against charges that I think we can, that I, I would describe as simply specious. Virtually every professor I know, and I know a lot of them, of course, being in, in the business for 20-odd years, we work all the time. And the, uh, to have to spend a portion of our time defending ourselves against charges that we don't work is ironic at the very least and frustrating and worse.
0: Now, that does sound frustrating, but how does it affect sort of the state of affairs for everybody in the country, not just professors?
1: For a student, uh, I think that there is a lot more of what might be called defensive driving going on in the classroom. Students, I think, come into their college experiences now with some of these misconceptions. Certainly their parents do. And the combined result of the misinformation can lead to the kind of combativeness that, for example, a professor named Michael Barabay wrote a book about, he called, it's called What's Liberal About the Liberal Arts, and the book came out of the experience he had, which he wrote about in an article, of having a conservative student in his class who, um, who sought confrontation with him at every turn, and what it is that, and how he dealt with that. I am much more aware than I used to be that my way of going about my business is more apt to come under attack not simply scrutiny, which I welcome, but attack than it once was.
0: So do you get a sense that it's sort of like, um, people say, like the liberal media, sort of the liberal academic?
1: It's probably not unreasonable to suggest that academics are as a group left of center. I think that the surveys will show that that's true, just as the surveys show that it's true of journalists. But I think the question is not so much who you vote for when you go into the booth, As it is how you go about your professional business when you're outside the booth.
0: So, if you would say that there's, I guess, a little bit of a a suspicious relationship that's developed between students and professors in college, what are the likely sort of ripple effects of this throughout society, in your view?
1: First of all, I, I would suggest that in my own job, this atmosphere of suspicion is relatively muted. That having been said, I think that the effects of this are profound. I think that there is a growing breakdown of trust between the middle class and the university and that the trust relationship that exists between the American middle class and the American university has been absolutely crucial for the to the workings of the American university for at least 60 years and probably longer. It's since World War II that the American university became a middle class place. Before World War II, before the GI Bill, college education was much more the province of the well-heeled and the well-to-do. The G.I. bill made college education available to everybody following world, world War II. That's my parents' generation. Today, I think it's it's so entrenched in the way that that we look at the world that we understand in the United States that college education is something that anybody can get and that anybody can have and that people who want to get ahead in the world should have. And I think that that's, that's all very good. And our higher education system is terrific as a result, because the government and the people and the academy have all gotten together behind the idea that college education is a way to get ahead. That's, that's all fine so far. But in order for this to work... The tax dollars and the tuition dollars that the middle class pays into the academy, either directly in the form of tuition payments or indirectly in the form of taxes that are paid to the government, which the government then uses to fund public universities, in order for the relationship to work, the middle class has to believe that those payments are yielding a return that is satisfactory, productive, and ultimately nourishing for society as a whole. I think that right now, and I trace this back to the culture wars of the 80s, which, of course, have their own roots, but I think that trust relationship is in trouble at the moment, and I think it has to be repaired, not simply for the good of professors and students, although their welfare is important because the students of today are the people who run things tomorrow, but also for the good of the entire social contract as it's understood in the United States, the value of education to advancement. And if education is to have an enduring role in the way that this country goes about its business, and I think that most of us would agree that it should, then the trust relationship has to get fixed.
0: You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty.
1: My name is Rashida
0: Winfield, and I'm a graduate student here at Fordham University. I also went here during uh, undergrad. During my freshman and sophomore year, I used to take a uh, class that would meet at 830 in the morning. I was extremely nervous when it came to um, test time, especially with midterms. I would actually dream at night that I would not get to class on time. I arrived there at the classroom, and my professor does not let me in because it is just way, uh, I'm just late. Ah, the college anxiety dream. I know I've had them. These days they've been replaced by dreams where I go on the air and say blah, blah, blah. But for me, and for a lot of college students, they were absolutely a staple. Today on Fordham Conversations, we are talking about school, its attendant joys, and as you heard, anxieties, and our own anxieties about the place of college in American life. My guest is Lenny Casuto. He's a professor and the director of graduate placement and professional development at Fordham's English department. I asked him what historically college has been for in America.
1: Higher education in the United States began in the 17th century. Harvard was the first place, William and Mary the second. And uh, Harvard was uh, designed as a place for clergy. But um, as higher education evolved in the colonial period and in the early federal period in the United States, It was a place where you learned to become a functioning member of uh, high society. So it was a place that was trying to mold young adults into responsible adults. That's the oldest history of American colleges, that they were there to take young men of privilege, and I use the term men advisedly, and you turn them into the kinds of cultured, high-class characters that their parents and, presumably, they themselves are aiming to be later on. That's the history. It runs into a contrasting stream because at the end of the 19th century, American higher education imported the idea of the research university from Europe, specifically Germany. So there was a 200-year history Of in loco parentis, that is, the university acting in the in the stead of the parent, to form young men of distinction, and then at the end of the 19th century, graduate education as we know it, the research model as we know it, enters into the United States. And if I want to boil this down to a very stark dichotomy, the question of whether the university's business is to educate people or to create knowledge. There's a separate tradition for each one of those. And in the United States, we have a long tradition of both of them cohabiting uneasily. And in the United States, I think uniquely in the West, you have these two models existing at the same time competing in essence, for uh, primacy in the goal orientation hierarchy of American higher, higher education. And in many respects, a lot of the problems that exist today in American higher education are a result of the unreconciled nature of these two goals. A university certainly can do both. It can create knowledge and educate people at the same time. But it is important for the two sides to talk to each other, and to figure out how to work together. And there has, in at least as by my lights, not been enough of that discussion.
0: There's also a third thing, which I certainly have noticed more since I've been a grown-up, um, which is that universities, to some degree, also function to uh, kind of create grown-ups, but at the same time to prevent kids from, I guess, having to be grown-ups too quickly.
1: That's a good point. I think that that, too... That falls under the in loco parentis rubric, and all of this um, is felt in questions of what about underage drinking and and drug use on campus. Years ago, A generation ago, if students got involved in um, youthful hijinks, the university would often step in and um, serve as a buffer between the students and the police, and uh, in some places that still goes on. But the question, though, of what function does uh, the university play in deferring adulthood is i think a part of the larger question of how does the university go about forming adults and if you have an institutional view and this will vary from institution to institution that uh, kids should be allowed to be kids then activity programming will follow and if if the people who direct the social life at the university are doing things right there will be a unity of purpose, and the, uh, the kids will be allowed to be kids without having them wreck the place. But um, other universities, not simply in England, but also here, will operate under a, a different set of assumptions, that uh, kids, when they go to college, are ending a certain part of their childhoods, and it's it's time to become scholars or time to become grown-ups. Or and uh, And again, at a well-run university the kind of social life that follows will presumably support those assumptions.
0: There's one other kind of education that I do want to mention, um, and it will be quite familiar to any New Yorker who rides a subway, which is the preparation for a very specific career following high school. How does that fit in with all this, if at all?
1: Your question goes to another area in which American higher education is different and special. In England, for example, you pick your goal your career goal very early. If that goal, let's say medicine, involves going to university, you go to university. And if you make the grade, you become a doctor. If your goal is to become a paralegal in England, you don't have to go to university. You'll, you'll go to a technical school and you'll receive the technical education that you require and you'll go right into the profession. United States higher education is not unique, but nearly unique in the West, in that it offers an opportunity for students to um, experiment and look around and try to find something that they're interested in that will motivate them through a professional life. To me, that's a great thing, but perhaps I'm speaking from my own experience that it took me quite a while to find that that, uh, motivating field. And, uh, if I had been forced to choose sooner, I might have chosen differently and I might have wound up less less satisfied in my professional life than I am.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This morning at 7.30, it's Cityscape with George Bodarchy. This week, a look at the history of some of New York's parks. On Fordham Conversations this morning, we are talking about school in the spring and all of the associated temptations and anxieties. I'm Maggie Martin, and I'm a junior here at Fordham University. Uh, When I have anxiety dreams around final times, one of two things happens in my dream. So my first scenario is where I oversleep, and this not only causes me to be anxious in my head. I actually do wake up at 3, thirty, four, 4, 4.30 in the morning and obsessively look at my clock to make sure that I'm not oversleeping. The second scenario is where I walk into the classroom. I'm on time, mind you. I walk into the classroom and the professor hands out the test and I look down and it could be in Greek. I mean, it's just that you don't even like know what is said on the paper. The words don't make sense to you, the sentences, the questions. That's also really scary. A little later, one of the temptations of spring, cutting class. But first, let's hear the rest of my interview with Lenny Casuto. I asked him how what we expect from students and faculty has changed since he was in college, and how what we expect from college has changed over time.
1: I think that there's a lot of continuity in what we expect of college that there is a consistency of expectation that the middle class has of college education that is really vital for the continuing function of higher education, which is a very conservative institution in the United States, a conservative with a small c. That higher education, it doesn't pay for higher education to change too quickly because it undermines the faith that people have in it to remain a bastion of upward mobility in the United States. And the credentials that higher education gives to students are not just credentials that enable the entry into different professions, although they do do that. The credentials that higher education provide also give membership in a larger group. A university is not just the students who are attending and the faculty who teach there, it's everyone who's ever gone, it's everyone who's ever taught. A legendary dean at Harvard wrote a book called The University, An Owner's Manual. Uh, his name is Henry Rosovsky, and he uh, tells this story in the book of how uh, when he was a dean, he used to see student protest groups. And he had a, a method that whenever a group of student protesters would come to him for any reason, he would invite them in and he would say, Before you begin, I just want to say one thing. You're here for four years. I'm here for life. The university is here forever. Now, what is it that you wanted to talk to me about? I think that all universities, to a greater or lesser degree, are investing in their foreverness. And that that foreverness is under attack. It still has a long way to go before before it breaks down. I think that there's a lot more that's the same than different. What can a professor expect? Well, I'm a professor now, but I wasn't one then. And so I don't really know. I think that there are some continuities, some important continuities, because the big change for professors when the profession suddenly became very tight and it became much harder to get jobs, that took place in the early 70s, that change. Before the early 70s, The employment market for professors was wide open to the point that some of my teachers when I was in college used to reminisce about how when they got out of graduate school, they could pick which region of the country they wanted to work in and almost pick their jobs because the baby boom was expanding the student population and there was post-Sputnik money that was resulting in funding more and more programs. Faculty positions were exploding all over the place. Well, in the 70s, that shut down very abruptly, and it has remained so ever since. So there's a sameness, a consistency between 1977 and 2007 in that respect, too, that professors entered the world of publish or perish shortly before I went to college, and they've been in it ever since.
0: Now, for people who are just starting out as students who are starting college this year, what can they expect?
1: I think that... A student starting college in the United States this year has a pretty good deal. American higher education, despite the political debates that simmer below the surface and in some cases boil and out in the open, I think that um, the American university is doing a pretty good job of taking in people who have less education and turning them out into the world four or in some cases, five years later with more education and a budding specialization. That is, I, I think that um, that American higher education remains a, um, a a productive adventure, an interesting adventure.
0: Now, you sort of started addressing this already, um, but I will ask you, a lot of people outside of academia would sort of, I, I don't want to say mock, but, but mock, the complaints of academics that their livelihood features a lot of injustices, um, hardships, but from outside, it kind of looks like, oh, you know, they have summers off, they get to choose what they're doing, you know, they get to do this great field work abroad and so, so on and so forth. What's to complain about in the academic life?
1: I certainly don't want to suggest that professors are an oppressed class. I think that this is a good job and I'm glad I have it and I enjoy doing it. What I do want to suggest, though, is that just because it's a good job doesn't mean that we don't work like hell within that job, nor does it mean that it is a job without pressure. There's an enormous amount of pressure in a professor's job, not just financial. We don't get paid all that much compared to people with comparable expertise outside the academy, but that's okay, that's a choice, and that's part of what we get. The summers are part of what we get in exchange for that, the flexibility to do the work that we want to do according to the schedule that we want to do it. But I don't want to end this without stressing that doing a professor's job involves an awful lot of pressure, particularly before the tenure hurdle, that um, six, seven years of graduate school followed by about the equivalent period, another six or seven years, working for tenure, you're investing an enormous chunk of some of your most productive years trying to make that grade, trying to clear that hurdle to, uh, to scale that obstacle to reach a point where a professor has more power to choose the sorts of things that he or she wants to work on. I think it's important to acknowledge that while professors have flexibility, they labor under certain kinds of pressure which are unusual in the working world, the idea that you can lose your job after having invested 12 years of relatively low paid full time work in it, you just lose it. That's what the tenure decision can be. And to work toward that decision is highly pressured. An associate in a law firm understands this. But uh, if an associate in a law firm doesn't make partner, then it's probably easier. For that lawyer to go out and get another lawyer's job than it is for a professor who's been turned out at tenure to get another professor's job. Professors also, when we're in graduate school and we are studying and preparing to get the credential that will get us onto the job market, at the same time we spend, we wonder where in the country will we wind up because the job market isn't what it once was. And if you get a job, you're lucky, and you go where the job is. So to be in in graduate school in, let's say, um, North Carolina, and to go out on the job market knowing, say, you you like North Carolina, you like the South, but you might get a job in um, Arizona. And if you get one, you count yourself lucky, and you go off and you start your life again in Arizona. It's a kind of pressure that is unusual in the American professions. It's worth it in many ways. I have um, a rare freedom to learn about what I want to learn about and to teach what I want to teach and to enter into satisfying relationships with students and with colleagues and you know to learn all the time. I'm still in school and I love school. I loved school when I was a student and I love it even more now that I don't have to take tests. So it's a fun job. It's an interesting job, but it's a hard job.
0: In the interest of both students and faculty, what would you like to see happen in the academy?
1: What would I like to see happen in the academy? I would I would I would like to see more awareness within the academy and outside the academy of the issues that confront the academy, specifically the mutual suspicion, the lack of trust, that is bedeviling both sides. I, I don't think that either the critics of the academy or the professoriate ourselves need to spend as much energy as we spend opposing each other. I think that uh, that our goals really have a lot more... Uh, there's a lot, I think there's a lot more common ground than either side is currently willing to admit. I hope that we can spend more time looking for it.
0: Well, Lenny Casuto is a professor and the Director of Graduate Placement and Professional Development at Fordham's English Department. Lenny, thanks so much. Thank you. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We'll close the show today with a look at one of the temptations of spring, cutting class. In college, it's pretty easy to skip class and not face any immediate repercussions, but not so in high school. From Cure Youth Radio in Chicago, we have this look at cutting class and getting caught. Excuse me, could I ask a question to Carlos?
1: What? What was the question? Carlos, where Same were question. you? Where were you first period <laughs> this morning? <laughs> <laughs> How you not cut school? What? Oh, um... Uh. haven't cut school yet. Yes, you have. No, I, did I didn't. Yes, have. No, I didn't. I cut certain classes which I'm bored of sometimes. <laughs> like for today... Six periods is gonna be boring. There's gonna be nothing to do. Someone cut the experience Is there a reason that you chose not to come to my class, but to make it in time for lunch? Um, I woke up kind of late. Well, I just no, went over yeah, to a restaurant so and so chilled. So.
0: One time I did cut three days, I think, actually, because I wanted to go to a life and comic concert in Madison. Um, I'm a big White Sox <laughs> fan.
1: To the, White, the White Sox, Sox parade. parade. To the White Sox parade. I can't cut school because it's like nearly impossible because all the exits are like wired or there's somebody, or camera or something. We really didn't have to cut school because I mean the school got set on fire. We cut school because we had to finish a project that was due the next day, so we decided not to go to school to finish that project. <laughs> go, she doesn't go to school because she didn't have enough sleep. We don't or her pants got wet. This one time, her pants got wet. We Something with the school won't let my father come pick me up because he was on my emergency list, so I left. Tuesday? uh, The same. Yeah. Will I see you on Monday?
0: Yeah. I, I cut one today. This is not my lunch period.
1: Because I got engaged um, on my lunch break. Usually it's because I'm too tired of school and I need to just, you know, stay by myself and be alone. Do
0: you love Kiri? Yes. You want to be here as much as you can, including night school. No. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which is also on our website. If you have any comments or questions about the show, you can email us. Our address is FordhamConversations at WFUV.org, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. Producing the show this week with help from Liz Brockland, I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend. WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.